You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Who all wants their hour of sleep back? Yeah, a collective, yes. Um, it is good to worship with you. Nor, nowhere else I'd rather be. Um, I know there's people traveling right now, and there's a, there's a slew of sicknesses going around right now, but it is great that you're here, and we get to worship together. Um, as we look at God's Word, uh, we come and we sing to Jesus, and then we want to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit as we look at the Bible. So that's what we're doing this morning. Uh, before I begin, we do have our kids' sermon notes. Those are in the hallway along with totes. And once again, kids, you fill out those sermon notes. You come up to me afterwards. The goods are right here. So show me that you're listening and you're paying attention and just fill that out. All right. As you know, we're continuing in our sermon series of the Sermon on the Mount. And at present, we are slowly walking through the Beatitudes. We're not like mall walking. That's one way to go about it, right? Uh, We're actually like walking on the seashore looking at the shells and observing the waves. We're taking our time. We're soaking it in. Uh, One of the principles that I have been sharing about the Sermon on the Mount is that your actions follow essence. I keep repeating that, and you're going to have to get used to it. Um, I want you to be thinking that in your head by the time we're through the Beatitudes, right? Your actions follow essence. What I mean by actions follow essence is that who you are in the heart informs how you live. And the Sermon on the Mount is written in that way. So if this is true, which it is, we're not shocked that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus first preaches to your heart. He's getting right, he's getting right at us, right here. Before he starts saying, hey, this is how you live now. He's getting us right in the heart. And and I've also been saying in this sermon series, the path that leads to flourishing starts with being honest with ourselves. Far too often, we're not honest with ourselves. But Jesus says, no, I'm going to be honest with you, and I want you to be honest with you. Heart change leads to life change. And when your heart and life take on the shape of Christ, what do we see? God is glorified and how you live. Now, let's be real for a moment. You all know there are areas in your life that you want to change because of sin, right? That's the real part. Let's be honest. We all have those areas. Anyone who thinks they do not need to change is frankly lying to themselves and proud and arrogant. What does it say in 1 John 1.8? If we say we have no sin, we what? Deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But if you know there are areas where you want to change, then you come to Jesus and you eagerly hear the Beatitudes. You eagerly receive being poor in spirit. And what that means, all the implications, and what it means to mourn, as we saw last week. Our Lord Jesus did not preach the Sermon on the Mount for people to remain the same. Our Lord Jesus our Savior, preached, showing you the blueprint for how to change. And as we've been 
seeing, it begins with the beatitude. So I'm going to briefly pray, and then we'll just jump right in. One verse, Matthew 5, 5. Heavenly Father, we need your grace this morning. I need the Holy Spirit to infuse grace into our minds, into our hearts as we look at your word. And my prayer for myself is just to be faithful to preach your word, but also as we look at what you have spoken and what you continue to say, that you'd speak directly to our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The idea of inheriting the earth is interesting to me. Uh, what does the earth have to do with your heart? Like I was trying to make, what's, where's Jesus going with this? When you take the third beatitude at face value, you realize there's actually a lot of competition to control the earth. <laughs> Since Genesis 3, there have been a lot of people who have tried to inherit the earth like, on their own strength. There have been a lot of people who've done a lot of taking without asking for permission. Just take one, like, history class, and that's what you see. Wars have been fought over taking land and earth. Like, what do we see right now in Ukraine? One country evading another country because they want the land. Now, I'm not getting into the, the specifics of the history, but that's what we see, right? There have been laws and policies created to restrict who does or do, who does not have access to land, right? Zoning restrictions are created in cities and counties to limit what can be built and where. You ever tried to build something? you got to go to the city, and they're the ones who give you permission. The, the law of eminent domain allows government to take control of private property. Now, I'm not going to get into whether you're for or against eminent domain. i got my opinions. Nonetheless, right, the law is created Why? to control land and who has rights to it. A little darker, gangs in urban cities are divided by streets. Like you go south side Chicago, you better, you better know what street you're on and who owns that particular part of the land. I'm not sure there's a more valuable commodity, and technically I don't think land is a commodity, but yeah. I think you get the point. I don't think there's a more valuable commodity than the land of the earth. When people reject the rule and reign of Jesus Christ, we should not be surprised that other people are going to attempt to rule over the earth. People will try to rule over the earth and take more of it, even if that means violence. The people of this earth are more like renters than landlords. Like, we'd rent our property, right? People of this earth are more like renters than landlords because Jesus is the landlord of the earth and he is the only one who has the right to give it away. So I say people attempt to rule over the land of the earth because the truth is Jesus Christ is ultimately in control. Jesus is sovereign over the earth. As we see with this conflict in real time, right? What's going on in Ukraine? We need to remind ourselves of this particular truth, this precious truth by Abraham Kuyper, a Dutch theologian of yesteryear. He said this, there is a really great quote, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence which Christ does not cry, mine. 
if Kuiper is correct, then we need to wrestle with the implications of Matthew 5.5 because Jesus says that he is going to give the earth to the meek. To the meek. The meek. God's covenant people eagerly await for the inheritance of the earth even while unmeek people seem to be in control. Here's what we know. The wealthy will not inherit the earth. The next generation will not inherit the earth. Your good connections with the right people will not inherit the earth. But Christ-like meekness will allow you to inherit the earth. In Matthew 5, 5, we certainly have this eschatological vibe going on. We're in the present listening to this, but also with a thought toward what's to come. We need to remember that while we're taking a microscope to Matthew 5, 5, it is connected to the other Beatitudes, right? Which is why I had Dean read the first Beatitude, the second Beatitude, and then the third Beatitude. When a person comes to God poor in spirit, that is to say, comes to God just knowing he's empty and needy, you can rightly mourn. That was the connection I tried to weave and make last week. As we saw last week, the people of God mourn over sin and over the sin of the world. And you can only be meek in the eyes of God if you are poor in spirit and you rightly mourn. Meek people acknowledge their dependence upon God and have a healthy and honest perception of their self. As with the first two Beatitudes, the third Beatitude cannot be lived out on your own effort. Oh, we try so hard to do things on our own effort, but you can't. You want to know why you can't? Because you've tried and you failed, and you need Jesus' help. Sean Powers has tried, he has failed, and he needs help from Jesus. Man, how many times have I tried? <laughs> like, live out all these beatitudes. We need Jesus. Meekness, the way God sees it, is not your or my natural disposition, but it's given by the Holy Spirit. We see shadows of meekness in the culture, but true meekness requires heart change. So in an attempt to understand meekness and its connection to the earth, right, there are three questions I want to ask of Matthew 5.5. Five. I'll put them up there for you. What is meekness? Brian didn't explain it, right? I'm going to do it here, but he mentioned it. Like, this is what we're grappling with, so we're going to need to figure out what is it? What does meekness look like? And why do the meek inherit the earth? Why the meek in particular? So we'll take them kind of one at a time. These are three fundamental questions to help us plumb the depths of the third beatitude. So what is meekness? First, the Greek word for meek can also be translated as gentle. So if you're reading your New Testament and you kind of run into the word gentle, that could easily be translated as meek. Both are appropriate translations, but I'll prim primarily stick with the word meek just for the sake of consistency. Second, meekness or gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.23. It's translated as gentleness, but same Greek word, meek. Third, meekness is not weakness. It even rhymes. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is not 
a physical weakness, or having a weak disposition. You might be shocked to hear that the meek man or woman stands for the truth of God and actually willing to die for truth. Christian martyrs were meek. Right? Christian martyrs. They were never weak, not once, but strong men and women who believed in the love of Christ, who believed in the gospel, and were willing to die for their faith. They were not weak people. They were meek people. The Puritan preacher from the 17th century, Thomas Watson, if you've never heard of him, I encourage you to read whatever he's written. (laughs) Good stuff. Thomas Watson preached an excellent sermon on Christian meekness right out of this verse. He insisted that meekness is kind of a twofold way to think about it. Uh, Christians are called to be meek toward others and God, toward God and toward others. This bifurcation helps make some sense, right? We have the greatest commandment in the New Testament, love God, love others. And so we see how this kind of maps on when, when we're thinking about meekness. So I like the way Watson frames meekness. Watson says that meekness towards God is first submission to God's will and submission to his word. So if you want to be meek before God, we are coming to his word and we're saying, God, you speak to me. I'm submitting to you, O Lord, to shape my mind, my heart, and my life. That's meekness. It does take a meek spirit to submit to God. Uh, Do you know who does not submit to God? (laughs) The proud and the arrogant. As we've seen in the previous two weeks, humility holds up each beatitude. Uh, The proud bristle at the idea of being poor in spirit or mourning or being meek. But the humble are even willing and, yes, desirous to take on all these characteristics. You all seen the construction going around in the Des Moines Metro? It's like every five minutes they're putting up something new. It's like, when did that get there? Five minutes ago. Well, all of these structures are reinforced by steel rods, right? Humility is the steel rod supporting each beatitude, including meekness. Humility in cooperation with the Holy Spirit endows meekness in a person. So I like Watson's perspective, and I like his perspective even more when he talks about how meekness relates to other people. Like, how do I be meek toward you and you toward me? What does that mean? What does that look like? Here's what he says. Meekness is a grace whereby we are enabled by the Spirit of God to moderate our angry passions. So it's interesting to me that Watson and actually Calvin, Lloyd-Jones, all make this connection that in contrast to meekness, we have anger. So Watson is helping us see that a meek person submits to God and he lives a life of self-control, particularly over angry passions. Like I gave you my pastoral confession last week, right? where I got angry with my kids and I had to repent and seek forgiveness. Like, the meek Sean Powers would have kept his anger in check. Now, all people have desires and passions. Watson, and more significantly, God does not dismiss desires and passions per se, but we know from Holy Scripture that our, in our everyday life bears witness that there are godly passions and desires and there are sinful passions and desires. 
The meek person is in control of sinful passions, in particular, anger. I saw a picture, let's call it a shadow, of meekness the other day. On March 6th, the Iowa Hawkeyes men's basketball team played their, one of their rivals, Illinois. And uh, it was a great game. I mean, I love basketball. It's, it's March Madness. I'm dialed in. You know, I'm going to have like the three TVs and I'm watching all the games. And I don't even know that team, but I'm cheering for the underdog. Anyways, I was watching the Hawkeyes play and they lost 74 to 72. Hard fought game. Hard fought game. And um, if, you've, if you've ever been around athletes, they can take losses really badly, really poorly. How do I know? Because I was one of those people. <laughs> like, you lose a game, and I'm like, I hate the world. <laughs> Don't even talk to me, right? Well, on, on, the, on the team, Iowa Hawkins, they have one of the best players in the country, and uh, he played a great game as well. And I saw this picture on Twitter. I was scrolling through Twitter about two hours after the game, and I saw the picture of this, of this athlete with three kids taking a picture, all smiles, and you would have thought to yourself, like, they won the game. And here's the kicker. All the kids were wearing Illinois gear. Now, the player's Keegan Murray. And what I saw in him is a shadow of meekness. He lost the game. A lot of athletes just walk by the kids, get on the bus, and sulk all the way home. But not this guy. And I read the commentary of the, of the picture and he actually took time to talk to the kids. Right there. I don't know the guy, right? I just cheer for him, you know. Don't know his faith, but I saw something different. Saw something different. He lost a close game, but he had the self-control and awareness to care for others. Like we want our meekness to lead us in that direction. To be self-control and to care for others. The proud and the arrogant walk right by the kids. The proud and the arrogant, like I said, sulk on the bus all the way home. But the meek trust in God's providence and keeps the passions under control. Another area where we see differences between the meek and the arrogant is in relationship to how people understand their money. For example, it does not take more than five minutes of watching commercials on TV to see the relationship between the arrogant and money, right? Money isn't evil, but it could be the root, right? I once met a Nebraska farmer, and uh, he was like multi, 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 multi-millionaire. He had made something that helped with irrigation. I don't even understand. But if you met the guy in a cafe or at the grocery store, you never would have known his status. He was more concerned about me when we were talking. Hey, how are you doing? I, what I saw in that guy, who was a Christian, I saw meekness. He wasn't controlled by the stuff of the world. He was in love with God, and he wanted to love others. I was a meek, meek man. In these two examples, we see how Watson's definition of meekness is just kind of lived out. And here's the deal with meekness. Sometimes it's kind of easier to see than it is to define. Watson does help to bring definition to meekness, but seeing meekness and gentleness in others help us, helps us to understand what our Lord was saying in Matthew 5.5. 5. Meekness is a grace, once again, whereby we are enabled by the Spirit to moderate our angry passions. Watson is not suggesting that living a meek life is to live a subdued life. 
Not at all. A meek life is exciting. It can be joyful and yet under control. I want to allow uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones to pile on and continue to help us get our minds around meekness. He said in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount that the meek man and woman does not demand anything for himself. He does not take all his rights as claims. He does not make demands for his position, his privileges, his possessions, his status in life. Here is the point Jones is making. The meek know they are finished with themselves. The meek person knows he deserves no rights and privileges. Like, you have rights and privileges. We live in America, right? Just go memorize the Constitution. But you don't deserve any of that. Like, I love my Constitution. Like, liberty. I'm all in. Do I deserve that, though? At the end of the day, I don't. Not at all. But the meek person is amazed that God does give grace and mercy. God does give us more than what we deserve. I pray that almost every night with with my kids. Lord, help us to be thankful for the things you've given, the things we do not deserve. The meek man or woman realizes that anything they have is a gift from God. You see, the meek man or woman does not take what he receives and then takes what he has received and aims to bless others, right? Because the meek person knows it's not mine. It's God's. The meek life, as I've been saying, is a distinctly Christian life. Again, the world bristles at the meek. But God calls us to live distinctly as meek people. So I've already said that meekness is not weakness. Meekness is also not an absence of strength. I heard a pastor say that meekness is strength under control. That makes a lot of sense to me. A school teacher, right? Or a nurse, or a baker, or a person in the United States Army, right? Can all be meek. All kinds of people can have strength in various ways and yet control strength by God's grace. Meekness is not self-induced flagellation. You don't need to become, like good news, you don't have to become a Catholic monk in order to be meek. That's what I thought growing up. You know, grew up Catholic. i got to become a monk to live all this out. No, not at all. If you are meek, you have rightly ordered your heart and you know how to respond to Christ. So what does meekness look like? We've kind of defined it. And I did share two contemporary stories where we see a glimpse or a shadow of meekness. Now let's look at our Bibles to see some more examples of meekness. Moses is said to be a meek man. Moses, the man who killed the Egyptian. Let that land on you. He's the dude who went up Mount Sinai, got the Ten Commandments, and upon coming down, what did he see? His brother Aaron and all of Israel, who were impatient, made a golden calf because they wanted to worship that. So what does Moses do? He breaks the Ten Commandments. He's like, I'm done with you. In a righteous anger, he breaks those tablets. 
Also in righteous anger, Moses smashed a rock to provide Israel with water. Uh, Numbers 20. They were grumbling. He's like, fine, here's your water. Stop complaining. This guy, Moses, is the only person, I found this really interesting, the only person in the Old Testament who is said to be meek. Numbers 12.3 says this, Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. So we have this picture of Moses, we read our Bibles, we kind of see what's going on, and that guy is said to be meek. Again, meekness is not the absence of strength or leadership, but the meek person knows what has been given by God and what is required of him or her in any given situation. Moses was an amazing leader, a sinner, certainly, but a person who knew what God required of him. He was meek. Here's another example of strength and meekness. In Acts um, chapter 6 and 7, we read about the death of Stephen. Stephen, a man of grace and power, it says in our word, in God's word, was seized by the Jews for believing that Jesus was the Son of God. Stephen got saved, Jesus is the Son of God, and the Jews were like, we don't like this. We don't like this. So what does Stephen do? He preaches the gospel from the Old Testament. It's a, it's a, this, this particular um, sermon, along with Peter's sermon in, in, in Acts 2, are beautiful in the sense that they go to the Old Testament and they, and they show this all points to Jesus. And the Jews are like, mm-mm. So what do they do? They stone Stephen. He was murdered. It took meekness to keep his anger in check as he was being reviled. In strength and meekness, Stephen preached the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the message of the gospel cost him his life. And of course, we have to look at the ultimate picture of meekness in Jesus. What do we see in the gospels? We see Christ living out meekness flawlessly. He emptied himself and he he carries out the Father's will. The meekness of Christ turned the tables in the temple. The meekness of Christ had compassion on the crowds when they were hungry, right? Got 5,000 people, no food. Our meek Lord provided. In meekness, Jesus called the Pharisees a brood of vipers. Our meek Lord also prayed, not my will, but your will be done, as he was praying to the Father. It is meekness that carried out the Trinity's covenant of redemption for salvation. Yes, we can look to others to see meekness. We can look at Moses and Stephen, certainly, but it is in Christ whom we want to emulate. Like, if you want to be like, hey, what does meekness truly look like at the end of the day? Who models this best? Jesus. Start reading the Gospels. Augustine said that Christ does not bid us to learn to do miracles. And I'm, I'm a continuationist but does not bid us to do miracles, but Christ would have us imitate his meekness. I found that to be really helpful. In Matthew 21, we read the moment when Jesus enters Jerusalem. His entry into Jerusalem is significant because Jesus knows in a few days he's going to die. Right before he enters, we we read the following. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples, and they came to Bethpage, it's the city right outside of Jerusalem, to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, 
And immediately you will find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them. And he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, this is where the crux of it is, Say to the daughters of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The Greek word for humble is the same for meekness in Matthew 5.5. So let's get this straight. The creator of the universe, the savior of sinners, the Lord of heaven and earth rides to his death on the humblest of animals and is described as humble and meek. All, of all the adjectives that could be used to describe our Lord in this moment, we see this, humble, gentle, and meek. In meekness and strength, Jesus died on a cross so that you, Christian, can inherit the earth. So now it's time to circle back and ask why do the, why do the meek in particular inherit the earth? When Jesus says the meek will inherit the earth, he's not making up a new idea. Like we read that right away in Matthew 5, 5. We're like, whoa, this kind of comes out of left field. Actually, not at all. The words of Christ are 100% consistent with Holy Scripture. We read this in Psalm 37. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The context of Psalm 37 is really helpful to help us understand Matthew 5, 5. In Psalm 37... And in the present, evil is at work in the land. That's what's being described in that particular psalm. Evil men are flourishing in society, growing wealthy. We see uh, justice being corrupted. And all these evil people seem to be escaping retribution. The meek, faithful, and righteous are looking at the wickedness of the earth and saying, Why, God, why do they prosper? But God's people, the meek, are to live in the present with the hope for the future because God will wield the gavel of justice on the wicked. One day, right before the psalmist mentions how the meek will inherit the land, we read this. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. The call of Psalm 37 now from Jesus is a call to trust God in the present and for the future. The meek know that God will take care of his people. That's one of the points of Psalm 37. God, I'm going to take care of you. I know it looks insane right now, and there's craziness throughout the world, but trust me, I will ultimately take care of you. And the meek know it is God who will execute justice in his good and right timing. Here's the call of Christ for the meek at the end of Psalm 37. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they, the meek people, take refuge in him, their God. A quick parenthetical note on what Jesus is doing here. Jesus not only lives out each beatitude, but his words and actions are, are completely consistent with Holy Scripture. In other words, Jesus, like I said earlier, does not just pull this idea out of thin air and created something new. Not at all. He's helping us to read our Bibles. And he's saying, look, you remember what David said? 
in Psalm 37? I'm going to help you apply this right now. The meek will inherit the earth. Now, there's one more Old Testament connection that Jesus has in mind when he preaches Matthew 5, 5. The physical land is a big deal in the Old Testament. In the book of Genesis, we read about God's covenant with Abraham, right? God makes a promise to bless Abraham and his offspring, and God promises that there will be a land for his covenant people, the promised land. In our day, we know this to be like modern-day Israel. Well, Jesus ups the ante in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says his people, the meek ones, will not inherit just this tiny sliver of land, really tiny in comparison to the rest of the world. No, you will inherit the entire earth, all of it. All of it. Not just a little sliver that's by the Mediterranean. All the earth. Back to my quote by Kuiper. Let's reread it again. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ does not cry, mine. If this is true, which it is, then it is by the authority of Christ in which he gives the land to his people as an inheritance. He will give the entire earth to the meek as his gracious gift. The wicked attempt to take the earth with malevolent brutality. We're seeing that right now once again. But the meek know that their God and righteous king will one day deliver the entire earth into their hands. I want to end with a picture of what is to come. Right, I said this, this passage, this, this one verse has an eschatological vibe. Eschatology means like end times, like what's coming. I'm going to end with a picture of what the meek ones will inherit. In the last book of the Chronicles of Narnia series, uh, there is a fantastic picture of inheriting the earth. Uh, the second to last chapter of this particular book is called The Last Battle. And the chapter is entitled, Further Up and Further In. The scene is about how Aslan's followers are now in this new Narnia, right? They've been living in the old Narnia, but now they're in the new Narnia. In the old Narnia, there was conflict and strain. There was a battle between good and evil. But also, we read in the Chronicles of Narnia series how these very flawed characters are growing to understand who Aslan is. And one day, our beloved characters go from the old Narnia and into the new Narnia. Here is the excerpt what the meek will inherit. The setting of the passage is the new Narnia, and the narrator is speaking. I'll do my best to tell the story well. It'll be on the screen. It is hard to explain how this sunlit land was different from the old Narnia, as it would be to tell you how the fruits of that country taste. Perhaps you will get some idea if you think of it like this. You may have been in a room in which there was a window that looked out on a lovely bay of the sea, or a green valley that wound away among the mountains. And in the wall of that room, opposite to the window, there may have been a looking glass. And as you turned away from the window, you suddenly caught sight of that sea or that valley all over again in the looking glass. And the sea in the mirror or the valley in the mirror were in the ones, in one sense, just the same as the real ones, yet at the same time, they were somehow different, deeper, more wonderful, in like places in a story, in a story you have never heard but very much want to know. The difference between the old Narnia and the new Narnia was like that. The one was a deeper country. Every rock and flower and blade looked as if it meant more. I can't describe it any better than that. 
If you ever get there, you will know what I mean. Now, a little bit more, because this is where this whole narrator is leading us to this statement. It was the unicorn. There's unicorns in Narnia. Pretty awesome. My girls love it. The unicorn summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forehoof on the ground and neighed and cried, I've come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. And then I'm not going to say that. The horse, the unicorn neighs. But then he says, come further up. Come further in. Now, unlike the unicorn, we actually know what we're looking for. The meek can look around at the earth and see a glimpse of what is to come. The meek know something better awaits. Like the unicorn, we will rejoice when we inherit the new Narnia. Um, Professor Doriani sums up Beatitudes 1 to 3 like this, and I think this is helpful. The first Beatitude offers the kingdom as a present possession. The second and third Beatitudes promise a future blessing. This reminds us that we live between the times. We enjoy some of the privileges of redemption, but we wait for the fullness. Right now, it seems like wicked sometimes reigns. I get it. But the meek do not lose heart. The meek remember that it is Christ who created the world. And it was the sin of man that put God's creation into rebellion. But in this already not yet age, we can see a glimpse a glimpse of what we will inherit. We know God will complete his plan of redemption. There will be a day when the meek will inherit the earth. And the meek will go further up and further in. So, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.